Good morning. My name is Cole. I'm a pastor at Citygate Church in Portage. It is great to be here. Uh, your pastor, we, we right now we're preaching a sermon series at Citygate Church where we go through each book of the Bible and give one sermon to it. So one sermon on Genesis, one sermon on Exodus, etc. And we're at Psalms, so I figured we'll just uh, export this, uh, this one and give it to, to Pastor Ray. So we're very, very glad that he can be at Citygate this morning uh, preaching on the Psalms. So thank you very much for that. Uh, our sermon text for this morning is from Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, and I will read it in the context of the verses that come before and after it, which say, Then the children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Uh, it was several years ago now that I found out that my wife was pregnant with our child, Lewis, and I felt about as prepared as you fathers were when you found out you were having your first child. Uh, but one of the wonderful patterns that I saw over and over again in Scripture is God's promise to save the children of believers. And I don't have time to go into that, but just as a for instance, an easy for instance, Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 says, uh, but showing, or I'll back up and begin in verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and those who keep my commands. And this is indeed a very joyful, a very comforting promise. Uh, but as I look around in the American evangelical church, what I see is that this does not seem to be a promise of God that is taking fruition. Uh, for instance, you can look at lots of dis different statistics and they vary. But on average, it's between 40 and 88% of Christians, young Christians, children and teenagers who grow up in an evangelical church leave by the time they hit college. They walk away from Jesus. Because to walk away from the church is to walk away from Jesus. He is the head of the church. So you cannot walk away from the church without walking away from the person of Jesus. And so let's take that 88% and round it down to 80%. And then let's take that 40% and average it with that 80. We get about 60%. That's over half. It's the majority. There's about 16 kids who were up here a moment ago. That's about 10 of them. Ten of those 16 kids walk away from the church and in so doing, walk away from Jesus himself and spend eternity without him. That's a scary statistic. And as a father and as a pastor, I don't want to contribute my children to that statistic. I don't want any of my children to be a part of that 60%. At the church where I pastor, I don't want to, to watch the plethora of children that we have grow up and see 60% of them leave. And I don't think that this is the kind of church that wants to see that either. I think rather the opposite. And so this morning I have a sermon on children, and I hope that, I think that's going to be very pointed, but very, very encouraging for you uh, as you are striving to see this statistic dwindle and then diminish completely. 
And so before I begin formally, I want to lay a foundation for, for what children are, very briefly, uh, nothing that you probably have not heard before from this pulpit, because I remember myself learning the value of children from right here. Uh, children are a blessing and not a curse. Children are a blessing and not a curse. Psalm 127 says that children are a reward from God. Proverbs chapter 17 says that they are, uh, that grandchildren are the crown of their grandparents. Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, speaking of children, says this. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries and in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. I don't know what that means. But the next time you hear the screaming child of a Christian parent, remember that that scream is establishing a stronghold. That that scream has been invoked by Almighty God in order to silence the enemy and avenger. That that child is screaming on account of the enemies of God. I don't know what that means. It's, it's worth your meditation. Or listen to the words of Jesus when he talks about children in John chapter 16. Verse 21, he says, When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. And so you would, of course, with me agree that children are a blessing and not a curse. But here, it, of course you would do that because that's, that's just very plainly taught in Scripture. But this, because we're sinful, this is what we do. We say, yes, children are a blessing, but uh, they're also very noisy. You see what we do with that? We qualify the blessing. Yes, yes, God, I agree, children are a blessing, but have you considered how expensive they are? Yes, children are a blessing, but you will not have the same freedom you had before having children as you do after. Yes, but have, they are a blessing, but have you ever changed a diaper? We could go on. But to, to agree with God and then to qualify it is to disagree with God. To agree with God and then to qualify your agreement is to actually disagree with God. And it is to complain about the blessings he has given to you. And this is what we are tempted to do. We have a sinful heart. This is what the Israelites did. What did they do when God delivered them from slavery from Egypt? They complained about it. What did they do when he sent bread down from heaven to feed them? They grumbled about it. And what happened to them? That whole generation was put to death in the wilderness. That's how big a deal grumbling is about our blessings. A whole generation of Israelites died for it. We do not want to be the kind of people who grumble about blessings. So yes, children are a blessing. Amen. They are not a curse. But be careful. Watch your sinful heart as it tries to maneuver around God's blessings into grumbling through qualifying those blessings, because children are a blessing, not a curse, period. To agree with God and then to qualify it is to disagree with him. And so let's look at what we see about children in Scripture this morning. I'll be jumping around quite a bit. If you're one of those people that frantically tries to keep up with a pen and paper, I can give you all of the uh, Scripture references afterwards, or you, you are indeed invited to try and keep up. Uh, but we don't even get out of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible without a reference to children. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28 say this. So God created man in his own image. 
He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God creates humanity. He creates the first two people, Adam and Eve. He gives them this earth, and he says, I want you to go and bless the earth. And how do they do that? They do it through procreation and cultivation. Have lots of children, spread those children around the earth, and wherever you're at, have dominion. It's dominion and procreation, procreation and cultivation. That is how humanity blesses the world. But we all know that Adam and Eve did not bless the world through their obedience to God's word. Rather, they brought a curse on it through their disobedience to God's word. But this does not mean, uh, just as God did not annihilate Adam and Eve on the spot, this does not mean also that the commission he gave them, the mission that God gave for humanity, is over. Because it's picked back up with one of Adam's descendants who is named Abram, later named Abraham, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 3 through 7. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. And this is what God said. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, which means the father is exalted. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful, and I will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. We often misleadingly say that this is God's covenant with Abraham, but it's not God's covenant with Abraham. It's God's covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's future offspring. That's who God makes a covenant with here. God says, I am going to be your God, Abraham, and I am going to be the God of your future offspring. And Abraham is a father of many nations. In particular, he is the father of the nation of Israel. And Israel is the nation through which the whole world is to see the light of the gospel. But when we first pick up with the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, what do we see? They are enslaved to the nation of Egypt. And so God is going to deliver them out of slavery from Egypt. And as he's doing so, he gives them a festival called Passover. And Passover is given so that the Israelites will remember once they have been out of slavery from Egypt, they'll be able to celebrate this festival and remember what it was like to be in slavery and what it was like to be delivered by Almighty God. And this is the command that God gives to them right before the Exodus occurs. Concerning Passover, he says, Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people knelt low and they worshiped. You see, this is the pattern that we see over and over and over again. Uh, If you want to contribute your children to that 40% statistic, that stay in Christ, that remain in the church, well, then you have to worship with them, which you are all doing, which is why this sermon is an encouragement to you. It's very good. I don't think you you can get through any portion of the Bible without coming to this conclusion if you are reading carefully and honestly. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 6 say this. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving to you, your son and your grandson, so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and carefully follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Israel worshipped with their children. We see this in the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. If I can get there. Joel chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 say this. Blow the horn in Zion. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim an assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the aged. Gather the infants. Really, Joel? Even the, the infants? You mean like the kids five and up, right? That's what the Hebrew word means there, five and up. Even babies nursing at the breast. Joel says, in case it's not clear what kind of infants I'm talking about, it's the babies who are nursing at the breast. The very littlest, littlest of ones are to be gathered with you for worship. In the book of Nehemiah, the people ask Ezra to come out and to read the law for worship. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we read this. It says, All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On that day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could, under, who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read it out of it from daybreak until noon before the men and women and all who could understand. All the people listened intentively to the book of the law. So every single person was gathered. And you might say, well, Cole, it said all who could listen attentively. Well, for number one, I don't think that would necessarily rule out the very small children. John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb when the gospel was preached to him, so there's that. However, all means all. So unless the one-year-olds are babysitting the six-month-olds, there are no Israelite babysitters off in some other part of the community to watch the children. All who had understanding were gathered to listen. All means all, and this means they all brought all of their children, unless they allowed their one to six-year-olds, or one to six-month-olds, rather, crawl around in the sand somewhere, which I don't think they did. And it's clear from the rest of Scripture that they were all gathered for worship. And you might think, well, Cole, you've, you've only been in the Old Testament so far. Is this something that's in the New Testament as well? Absolutely, of course it is. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Read a different way. Do not think that I came to abolish parents worshiping with their children. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill parents worshiping with their children. You see, the great thing about the new covenant is that instead of bringing your children to come and to sacrifice a lamb on the altar, you bring them so that they can take communion to remember Jesus. You, you, they don't come and they don't go to the tabernacle. Now they come to the church. That is how Jesus fulfills parents worshiping with their children, even the youngest ones. So why is it that 
on average, churches in America do not do this. I think, first of all, is that we don't see, right, there's no explicit Bible verse. There's no verse that says you must bring your children to corporate worship, or you must not bring your children to corporate worship, or you must bring your children five and up to corporate worship before and under can go somewhere else. So there's no explicit text for it, and so we feel the freedom to then just outsource it and do whatever we want. But as you are uh, going through the 1689 Baptist Confession, I will read to you from it, section 1, paragraph 6, concerning the Holy Scriptures. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life, which is kind of redundant, that everything else, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. You see, if you don't find an explicit verse for it, your, your attitude should not be, well, then I can just do whatever I want. The next step is, where is the pattern in Scripture for this? Where is the pattern in Scripture for it? If I don't have an explicit text, then I look for the pattern. And the pattern is very, very clear. So this is the vision of the Christian life I have for you. It's very simple, and I don't have a lot of qualifications. But if you are single, and you have the gift of celibacy, praise God. Spend your life serving the church, as Paul commands in 1 Corinthians to those who have that gift. If you are single and you do not have the gift of celibacy, you should be in pursuit of a godly man or a godly woman. If you are married, you should have children. Why? Well, because those children, you're going to do what? You're going to teach them how to worship. You're going to pass down your faith to them. And then they're going to have children and they're going to do that. And that's going to continue to happen until the whole world is full of Christians until the whole world is full of churches, and then Jesus returns. Right? What is, First John says, what is the victory that we have that overcomes the world? It is our faith. It is our faith that we pass down generation after generation after generation after generation. And that begins at the most important day of the week, at the most important time of that most important day of the week, which is right here and right now. Why do the majority of churches not do what the Bible clearly commands. I think because when we think about Sunday morning worship, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, you know, life is hard, and it is, and I, I come to, to Sunday morning worship, and I'm exhausted emotionally, physically, relationally, you know, all the psychologically, whatever, and I'm tired, and I'm worn out, and I need to hear the word of God. I need to be fed. I need to be refueled for the week. And I can't do that if there's all these noisy kids around me. But your kids are very quiet. The kids at City Gate are not this quiet. <laughs> I'm preaching in total silence. It's throwing me off a little bit. But there's, there's, there's all these very distracting kids around me, which there's not here. But, uh, or, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very, very difficult to do when I have to keep track of all my children and make sure, you know, what if they have to go to the bathroom? I've got to step out. I'm missing part of the service. And so we think that way about having children in worship, especially the smallest ones. But listen, church, if the church does not disciple the world, then the world will disciple the church. If the church does not disciple the world, then the world will disciple the church. And we, you, have been handed down a state of the church that has been discipled by the world. The world has discipled us how we ought to think of children, how we ought to think of parenting, even how we ought to think of what we're getting out of Sunday morning worship. I wrote this down so it would be very clear. The world has discipled the church 
so that we now measure what we are supposed to get out of Sunday morning worship by the standards of the gods of our culture rather than what the triune God says. The world has discipled the church so that we now measure what we are supposed to get out of Sunday morning worship by the standards of the gods of our culture rather than the triune God. Children are not celebrated, they're tolerated, and they see that. They are discipled to know that. This is why churches, the, the, the first step is obviously to farm them out to somewhere else so they're not in Sunday morning worship. And then teenagers are tolerated rather than celebrated, so we just farm them out to a youth pastor because he can disciple them for us. Or we still want to have something for them, so we start a Sunday night program for kids or a Wednesday night program for kids because we tolerate them. We don't celebrate them. Yes, they're a blessing, but they're also this, that, and the other thing. As in, you don't, you don't need another youth pastor. You don't need another youth program. You don't need another seminar. You don't need another barn a pole. You don't need another book on Christian living. You don't need another ministry model study. You need to open your Bible and do what it says. Open your Bible. Read it. It's clear. Do what it tells you to do. It's not difficult. It's just hard. Martin Luther said, right? Right, it is. Martin Luther said, if, if, if Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, instead of taking bread and breaking it, he took cow manure and broke that and said, eat of it, all of you, this is my body. He said, I would be handing out cow manure to every single Christian. Because we're not pragmatists. We're Christians. We don't obey God because it's easy or because it always makes sense or because we necessarily like it all the time. We do it because it's clear and because we're Christians. If you want a church that is going to stand when Jesus returns, if you want a church that turns that 60% statistic around, you need a little bit of Martin Luther's thinking. But what do children get out of Sunday morning worship? Why is it so essential that they're here? Well, first of all, I'll go back to what I just said, which is that even if children got absolutely nothing at all out of this service, nothing at all, you would still bring them to church, to worship right here and right now. Why? Because God requires it of you. Because worship is not about you. You're not worshiping yourself. You're worshiping the triune God. So yes, if children got nothing, nothing out of this, and every psychologist could tell you that, we would still bring our children. Abraham still went, and he sacrificed Isaac. And they do get something out of this, because as one very wise pastor has said, we do not primarily follow the knowledge of our minds, but the inclinations of our hearts. We do not primarily follow the knowledge of our minds, but the inclination of our hearts. Let me give you an example of this. You plan an amazing vacation to the ocean, and you foolishly, foolishly, the week before, allow your child to watch a whole week of Shark Week, <laughs> right before you go to the ocean. You get to the ocean. You get in the water. What does your child do? They want nothing to do in that water. Nothing at all. Because right? their little heart has been discipled by Shark Week. And so what do you do, you wise parent? You give them more information. You know, you say, daughter, son, did you know that more people die from vending machines falling over on them than shark attacks? <laughs> no, I didn't know that, mom, dad. Well, now you know it. Now you have that new information, so get in the water. <laughs> it's not how it works. You know that's not how it works. Right? If your child's going to get in the water, what are they going to need to do? Probably they're not going to need a lot of new information because they're not little data banks that you just dump info into and statistics. They're going to need to see mom and dad go out in the water and say, ha, oh, they've been out there for an hour. They're not eaten alive by a shark. And then they watch some more. Maybe they go from the dry sand to the brown sand. 
And maybe they let their little feet in the water. And if they're going to come in the water at all, it's probably because you're going to be speaking to them, because you'll be holding on to them, and you're going to be getting them in the water with them. We, we know this. We, this is how we, every other area of our life works, and yet we think that it's different when we come to Sunday morning worship. You just saw that Lewis, we, our, our son, we brought him at about this time last year, and many of you came up and you did what? You spoke to him. You said, oh, hi, Lewis. How are you doing? You look handsome. You look cute. And I didn't say, you know, he really doesn't understand what you're saying. He doesn't get it. He's not that smart yet. He doesn't, he's not going to comprehend anything. What's wrong with you? Why are you talking to him? Right, because how do babies learn how to talk? We don't push them off in a corner somewhere with a linguistics book and tell them, learn how to read, learn how to talk. You talk to them. And eventually they talk to you and sometimes talk back to you when they get older. But that's how they learn to speak. That's how you learn to speak. You imitate. This is why Paul, over and over and over again, I don't have time to read all the scriptures, but 1 Corinthians 4, 16, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Philippians 3, 17, Philippians 4, 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7. What do they all say? Paul tells the church, imitate me. Because that is how we learn. That's how your children learn. They learn by worshiping with you. And they learn at the youngest of age. They learn at the youngest of age. Bring your children with you. Someone once told me when, when Zeta was still pregnant that the most disappointing part of, Sunday, or of, um, of parenting is when your child sins and they know that, and you know right away that they got that from you. Like without you know, just the way they sinned, how they did it, you know right away that I taught them how to do that. They said that's, that's the most disappointing part of parenting. So if that is the most disappointing part of parenting, then the most joyful parts of parenting is when God uses you as a means and you baptize your child and say, they did that because of me. Right? When you sing a psalm or pray a prayer and your child says amen after it for the first time and you know they're imitating me. When they're a teenager and they don't need prompted to read their Bible, they just go and do it. Or they want to be in church. Or they grow up and they marry a godly man or a godly woman and they're what? They're imitating you. What you have passed down to them. Fathers, it's like a not total change of topic, but fathers, this, this actually begins with you. Begins with you. If you read Deuteronomy closely, uh, you'll notice that it's being, it's being preached to all of Israel, yes, and there's application for every Israelite, of course, but it's being primarily spoken to fathers. Right? Because where the, where the fathers go, the world goes. Where the fathers go, the world goes. Fathers must gladly assume responsibility for the way that their home is. This is how it starts. Gladly assume responsibility for the way that their children act on Sunday morning. All right, so when fathers, when there's something about your wife that you don't like, you gladly assume responsibility for that. You don't blame your wife. When there's something you don't like about your children, you gladly assume responsibility for teaching them that, and you bear that burden. When there's something you don't like about your home, you gladly assume responsibility for that. The problem that we have in the church is that the majority of our fathers know far more about the people who are in Washington than they do about the boys that their daughters are sending Snapchat pictures to. The problem that we have is that most fathers know more about what is going on on the other side of the world right now, in Ukraine and Russia, than they know about their son's internet search history. That is the problem that we have. And that has to stop. It begins with fathers. Fathers. I know that you want to see your children not in that 60% statistic. 
And I, don't, I know you don't want to be a part of a church that watches all these children who are up here walk away from Jesus when they grow up. It starts with you assuming glad responsibility for everything. A couple more things and I will close. Sounds unloving. Maybe this whole sermon has sounded unloving. I bring your children. To, what do you, it sounds unloving. That's mean. What about, what about my friend who hates kids and they come to church? Because you know, they're not Christian. If you're not Christian, you shouldn't have any good reason to love kids. So, of course, they're going to hate kids when they come into church. What about them? What about the single mother that's got, got four children? I invite her to church, and her kids are going to try and eat each other and kill everyone else. And she's not going to pay any attention to the sermon. What, what about her? Well, let me remind you that you do believe in hell. It's kind of a big deal. People who are separated from Jesus go and spend eternity apart from Jesus. That's pretty offensive. Um, you, one man, one woman, that's a marriage. That's pretty offensive already. Um, communion, when we take communion, you have to be baptized to take communion. That's pretty offensive. You already do a lot of things that are very exclusive and that the world does not appreciate, to put it kindly. And so this is just one more thing. Uh, the early church, when they took communion, I don't, think, I don't think it's unloving to do this. I don't think we need to do this. But when they took communion, uh, instead of telling people who were not Christians and not baptized that they were not allowed to take communion, they'd ask them to stand and leave the building so that just the Christians remained and they could take communion. I don't think that's unloving at all. That's good. Why? Because church is for believers. And it's for, as the covenant with Abraham, it's with you and your offspring. Sunday morning is for what? For you and for your offspring. So it might be that you don't just invite your unbelieving friend to church. It might be that you actually have to have them over to your home for a long time. That you don't get to just bring them to church and they can farm out their kids here and they can pay attention here. It might be that you have to train them in your home beforehand. Or when you see that woman who does come in and she has four, five, six wild kids... You might have to tell her, yeah, maybe, you know, church is not going to be the best place for you for a month, but you can come over to my house, and we can walk through this together. And by the way, here's, here's the gospel. Here's why we are doing this. But why don't churches do that? Because that's hard work. That's the hard work of evangelism. And that's for the, the children's workers and the youth pastors and the elders to do, right? No, it's not. It's for you to do. It's for you to do that hard work of evangelism. Final thing is that this all seems very difficult. And as I said, it's not. It's just hard. All right, but it does. It all seems it's very difficult, and it is. And it is. In the book of 1 Kings, there's a king who he wanted to prevent the Israelites from going to Jerusalem to worship the one true God and have them worship idols instead. And so he says this in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. He then made two golden calves, and he said to the people, Going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you, Israel. Here are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's too difficult for you. Worship these idols instead. Do you want something easy? Idolatry. Idolatry is always easy. Compare this to the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, or rather the reaction that Jesus gets to his teaching in John chapter 6, verses 60 and 66. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? From that moment, many of the disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. The teachings of Jesus are hard. Remember that the man you call king was crucified 
on a cross. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, do you want to make your life meaningless? Strive to make it easy and comfortable. Don't have kids, throw all your money in your 401k, and retire at 56. There you go. Easy, meaningless, comfortable life. But if you want to do something difficult, if you want to do something meaningful, something worthwhile, if you want to obey, you're going to have to engage in difficulty. Jesus remembered what kind of crown he wore. It was a crown of thorns. He didn't go to the cross for you because it was easy and comfortable. It was the most difficult thing imaginable. And he did it so that you could enjoy life and so that you could pass this faith on to your children. What you just saw up here at the beginning of the service is the future of the church. Is the future of the church right here. I mean, Jesus, he can, God is completely sovereign. He doesn't need America to be around or this single church right here, or Citygate Church to be around for him to be victorious over the whole world. But we ought to strive to be the means by which Jesus returns. This is the faith that, this is the victory that conquers the world. It is your faith that you pass on from generation to generation to generation to generation. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you. We thank you that you did not stay far away from us, but that you came near to us through your Son, Jesus, through his incarnation. God, that he has accomplished our salvation for us. We thank you that you have also sent your Holy Spirit to indwell us, that you have bought the church by your blood and empowered it by your Spirit so that we might have dominion over the entire world and be fruitful and multiply. God, I pray for all of the children who are here that they would grow up and that they would grow to love you and obey you even better than their parents. I pray that their parents would be exemplary models for them to imitate. For those who don't have children, that they would pour their heart and soul into the future of the church, which is the children. God, teach us, remind us that children are a blessing and not a curse. Forgive us when we falter here. We thank you that our salvation and the salvation of the world is all of grace. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.